Good morning, everyone. Pastor's message this morning is found in the book of Isaiah, the 53rd chapter, and we'll be reading verses 10, 11, and 12. The message is entitled, The Satisfied Servant. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Amen. I didn't plan on preaching uh, in this portion uh, for Advent season. I had hoped to be done, but in God's providence, I hadn't been able to finish, and as I was thinking what I should preach on, this seemed appropriate in so many ways. I won't give you a rehearsal of all of the ways that this seems appropriate, but when we celebrate Advent season, we celebrate the coming of the Son of God into the created realm by becoming a man. And his purpose for doing that, he said, was to give his life a ransom for many, to serve, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And this is the focus of Isaiah. This is the so- focus of the Isaiah and the fourth servant psalm here. Chapter 52, 13 through chapter 52, 12 is what we call the fourth servant psalm of Isaiah, and we've been looking at it now for eight weeks, split up by months so far this year. And, and my intention is to finish this. Uh, next month, at the end of the month, when we partake of the Lord's table, which we'll do after this sermon today. The, the text today may surprise us when we see that in it, the, the focus of our text is the satisfaction of the servant. The satisfaction of the servant comes, like many other things in this text, in a way that we would not expect. One of the main aspects of this text that we see before us, as you read it, I hope you will read it if you're not familiar with it. If you've read it and are familiar with it, read it more. Become more familiar with it. But one of the things that we see in the entire text, this entire fourth servant psalm, is the wisdom of God makes the wisdom of man, according to 1 Corinthians 1, foolishness. And the wisdom of God is to men, apart from the Spirit of God, foolishness to us. We can't come to this text and figure out why God did this. We cannot figure out the mind of God. When we come to this text, we are informed of things that only God informing us, by that would we be able to know. This is too high for us. And one of the ways it's too high for us is all of the paradoxes in it. Why would this thrice-exalted service servant of Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, be the most marred man, most disfigured man of any man, most humbled man? 
How could he be both exalted to a deified degree and at the same time so humbled and so low and so persecuted and suffer so deeply? And in these answers that we find in the text, we see the fulfillment in Jesus Christ and that fulfillment begun at Advent season. When we go back to verse 10, we see this very important word, when. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when. Now that idea of when is so important in Advent season, isn't it? In the fullness of time, Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Everything about Advent season is about fullness. It's about fulfillment. It's about promises becoming true, being fulfilled in the Son of God becoming flesh. The connection between Christ's suffering, according to the will there in verse 10, the will of the Father and the prosperous will of God is unbreakable. There is an insoluble connection between the will of God and the suffering servant. Neither is there salvation from sin apart from the suffering of this servant of the Lord. The prophet, though, doesn't move far out of this context. In fact, the reason why I had Brother Jim read verses 10 through 12 is because this is a conjoining portion of this this psalm. This is the end of this psalm where we've seen the lowest uh, humility of this servant. Now we see why he's exalted even in his humility. Does it exalt your heart? Does your heart lift with praise when we see the servant exalted? It should. When we understand why he suffered, when we understand that it was because of our sin that he suffered, when we understand that he bore our grief and our sorrows, that we, though like sheep, had gone astray, he was the lamb that was quiet and silent, to a, as like a dumb lamb to its shears. He did not open his mouth when he was crucified. And so when we see him exalted, our hearts should be raised. And this is that point of the song when he sees his own suffering and what it's produced. And we see something of the passion of our Christ. One of the great questions of the Christian is why does he die? One of the questions that we have is why does he love us so much? Why does he go to the cross? Why does he become man? Why does he humble himself? And there's two answers given there in verse 10, isn't there? The first is that it was the will of God. Jesus says, I always do what pleases the Father. The King James says it was the pleasure of God to crush him. It was his will to put him to grief. But the will of the Lord prospered in the servant's hand. And at the same time, we see the passion of the servant there in verse 10, don't we? We see the offspring that he produces. That's how I understand. We remember the the pronouns can be used in many ways in these verses, and there are many reasons why that might may be, but we see the truth of God's good fruit coming about by his will through the suffering of his servant, and one of those good fruits is us, sinners, salvation coming to you and I. This morning, I really want to focus our attention not as much on the suffering element of the psalm that is there throughout the psalm, which is the main priority of the psalm. 
but of the satisfaction element of this verse. Verse 11. Notice how it begins and how it ends. Out of the anguish of his soul is how verse 11 begins. Anybody have any anguish of soul these days? You think it's for nothing? This is an indication that our suffering is not in vain in the Lord. This life is not in vain in the Lord. I heard about a new coronavirus strain now in the world. I'm sure a lot of people are very concerned about this as they hear it. Many are concerned because freedoms they'll lose. Many are concerned because of their health that they might lose, their life they might lose. But it says here at the beginning, out of the anguish of his soul, in the second half, the second, the book end, as it were, of this verse is this, he shall bear their iniquities. This verse opens and closes with the suffering of the servant. But the meat, I believe, of this verse is what that suffering produces. But we must not forget what produces the fruit. It's the suffering. It's his suffering, not ours, that produces what comes next. The first point this morning is the servant satisfied. Christ satisfied. We realize, and I want you to know, I I don't want to keep it a secret, and I'm not trying to keep you in suspense, that this servant is the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to say the servant all the time. Sometimes I'm going to say Christ. Understand that I'm not doing a disservice to the prophet here by doing that. He's speaking of Jesus in this servant psalm and his satisfaction. Notice what it says. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall be satisfied. The servant is the subject here. It's him who's crushed by the will of the Father, of the will of Yahweh, the righteous one, and by the will of sinful men. Both we see those in the servant psalm leading up to this. His grief and anguish came in the giving of himself to be sin for us. Even though he didn't know sin himself, he became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But there's a convergence here. It's not the suffering itself that satisfies the servant. He doesn't just look out at the fact that he suffered and he doesn't have some sort of, uh, uh, of satisfaction in the mere suffering itself. He is not masochistic. It's what he's accomplished. It's what we've already read that he's accomplished that satisfies his suff- him in his suffering. But he looks back at it. One commentator says there's an idiom here that, that is like what we say when we say we like what we saw. He likes what he sees. Verse 10, there's three ways of describing the prosperity of the service, the servant there. First, he shall see his offspring. And I believe this, sees, this refers to Christ seeing those whom he has died for. Their salvation has come through his suffering, his children as it were those whom he gives life to, savingly. Second, he shall prolong his days, is mentioned there in verse 10. I believe this speaks about the resurrection of Christ, the ongoing life, the eternality of him. And this speaks of a great prosperity of the servant because he has overcome death. This is what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about, the victory of Christ over death. That means life is not lived in vain 
beloved. That means life has a purpose, a great purpose, an eternal purpose of bringing satisfaction to the Son by the glorification of the Father and the salvation and the eternal worship of his people. Third, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. These are things that he accomplished by his suffering. And so the sufferer, the servant, likes what he sees as a result of his suffering. But there's something of a maternal aspect of the way the language speaks to us here. This could be a Mother's Day service, in fact. I think John Gill, he was a Baptist pastor, I believe in the 18th century, maybe the 19th century. He put it very appropriately when he said in this phrase in verse 11 that it brings to mind the pangs of childbirth. The language brings that to mind, doesn't it? The anguish of his soul, out of it, he shall be satisfied by what he sees. Jesus said himself in John 16, 21, when a woman is given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, is giving birth. She has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world. And indeed, this in a sense, the language would depict that Jesus in a sense sees what he has begotten through his suffering. You. Your salvation. And he delights in it. What satisfies the Savior but the success of his saving activity? The salvation of his people. Remember what the angel says when he declares about the purpose for Christ coming into the world? To save his people from their sin. Do not think when you think of the cross that Jesus just somehow makes it possible. As if it's hanging out there somewhere. And he's hoping and he's biting his fingernails that maybe you'll be saved. No, what we see here is a language of satisfaction that his people will be saved by what he has done. Not merely the possibility, but the actuality of your salvation was in Jesus, his mind, in his vision, in the servant. When he looks back at what he did, he saw your salvation and he was pleased with it. God is not back in eternity, past, present, or future, however you think of it, saying, oh, I hope somebody receives Jesus. He knows his people. And he delights in you. He loves you. Do you know his love for you? That the servant, even in his reconciling his suffering, is satisfied because he's produced you as a saving offspring, his own. This is how scripture speaks of redemption. Ezekiel, the prophet, speaks of the origin of, or the birth of Israel as God's covenant people. He says, your origin and your birth are of the land in the land of Canaan. Salvation is said to come explicitly by the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 2.5 through childbearing. It's one of the 
most mysterious verses. Her salvation will come through childbearing. And the whole redemptive history of the scriptures is analogous to a woman in travail. Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pangs of childbirth until now. Indeed, we can see that Scripture in many more places signifies our redemption from sin into God's salvation, salvation by the travail and the anguish of childbirth. The very first promise in Scripture, Genesis 3.15, is that the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That God's creative purposes, his creative purpose will be saved through means of redemption that will come through the seed of the woman, the offspring. The whole series of salvation, the whole history, the whole story of God is a whole story that relates to the maternal aspect of suffering to bring forth the means of salvation. And it's depicted here in this servant psalm, in the language. In the anguish of his soul, he's satisfied by what he sees, an offspring. Jesus liked what he saw. What satisfied Christ in his anguish was our salvation. And you can sense, I hope you sense, the love of Christ towards yourself in you, in this, if you are in Christ. And if you don't have faith, let me tell you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will have this love as your own. You will know it. You will have the knowledge of Christ savingly yourself. You will know that when he suffered, he suffered for you when you believe on his name. These accomplishments in his humility and suffering serve as the reason why in chapter 52, verse 13, he is thrice exalted. He's prosperous. He's accomplishing what the Father sent him to do. But remember what Hebrews 12 said when it spoke about why Jesus went to the cross. Jesus liked what he saw. Well, what did he see? He saw what would give him satisfaction, doing the Father's will, first of all, and saving his people from their sins. It says, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. The cross was not pleasant to him. Suffering was real to him. He sweat drops of blood and agony and prayer at the garden because of the suffering that he faced. Suffering was as real to Christ as it is to anybody. And in fact, it was more intense for him than it will be for any of us in this life. He bore the sins of many. He bore it as if it were the eternal condemnation for our sins in his own body on the tree at Calvary. He became sin the epitome of sin. He really suffered. And he endured it. And he despised the shame. He was willing to go through. You see, this is the humility that we need to reflect on in this season, isn't it? That though he was the very image of God, 
The very image, the, the Greek word, that exact representation of God. In his being, he humbled himself. And we know the end of it is that he obeyed the will of God to death, even the death on the cross. He despised the shame because of the joy, meaning he was willing to go through it because of the joy that was set before him. For eternity, we're going to marvel at the love of Christ for us. Do you find it easy to love unloving people, unlovable people, hard cases? (laughs) The people that offend you? The people that are hard to live with in peace? There's a lot of those people in the world right now. Our political opponents, social opponents, our children sometimes, <laughs> our family members. Who's, hard, who's it hard for you to love? And Jesus loved us in this way while we were enemies of him. While we were his enemies, while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. Would we, with ink, would we, how's the song go, the love of Christ? Were the oceans filled with ink and were the skies of parchment made, we wouldn't have enough to write about the love of God in Christ Jesus. And this is what satisfies him. His service to save us satisfies him. Secondly, justified by Christ's knowledge. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquity. By his knowledge refers still to the servant. It's the servant's knowledge here. But regards what we know about him through faith. This fits the context of the verse very well, since as we'll see, those who have this knowledge of him shall be accounted righteous by him. Now some argue, and and certainly within the Hebrew, it seems like this is a valid argument. It can be made in the analogy of scripture that this by his knowledge means this is Jesus' knowledge. This is what he imparts to sinners so that they might be saved. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, Jesus said, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. In other words, there's a knowledge that Jesus has in himself that apart from him, you cannot know the Father. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know the Father. This is why we make a distinction, and we call the Muslim, and we call the Jews, And we call all of the people that say, well, Jesus was a great teacher and prophet and all of these things, but I have a different way to God. No, we want to say to them in love, no, Jesus is the only way. He's the only way. He's not a way. You don't know the Father if you don't know Jesus savingly. If Jesus is not Lord, if he is not sufficient for you, if he is not worshipped solely by you, you don't know the Father Because knowing the Father and worshiping the Father is knowing the Son and worshiping the Son. 
And that's true. What Jesus is saying here is true. I take this, what Jesus says, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, to be, make many to be accounted righteous as our knowledge of him by faith. So what he has revealed, we trust in, is what I case. Either case, whether you take it as what he's revealed, the knowledge of the Father, or what we believe, both are true of Scripture. And in any case, Christ is the means of revealing salvation in either case. It's very important. Both are true in Scripture. The centrality of the servant and salvation lying in him alone is central to this prophecy. What is being said here, in essence, is that there is no other way. It's him. What did Jesus say of himself? I am the way, the truth, and the knowledge himself, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And he is the righteous servant. And it's because, and I don't want to overstep this, there's so much here. A person could preach on this for a year alone. But we are not saved if Jesus is not righteous. You know, there is is a growing contempt, it seems, for the idea of the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. The imputation, when we talk about imputation, we mean that if there is not a righteousness that is the righteousness of God that we have before God, we are not justified before him. God will not pronounce us just if we are not indeed righteous. But what does that mean? Does that mean that we as sinners can do enough righteousness so that God will see in us enough righteousness to pronounce us righteous or just? No, that's not what we mean. But we must have God's righteousness. Then how does it come to us? Romans chapter 4 says it's counted to us when we believe on Christ. When we trust in Christ, his righteousness, which is perfect, here, he's the righteous one, is counted as yours. You are not righteous yourself. There is none righteous, no, not one. But when you trust him, that's the knowledge. When you know him, trust him. His righteousness is imputed. It's counted yours. And God sees you not in your own sin, but in the righteousness of his son. And he will not condemn his son. That's the union with Christ. That's imputation. That is justification. That is salvation. Beloved. In this one verse, all of these things converge. It's it's incredible. The righteous one, my servant, notice what it says of him, make many to be accounted righteous. Now the translators of the ESV believe that what we call forensic justification, which is to say this is like a courtroom setting. And God is the judge, and he's pronouncing who is just and who is not just. And here he is saying, those who know the servant, who have this knowledge of the servant, the righteous one, by that knowledge, my servant will make many to be accounted righteous. In other words, God will justify the sinner through my righteousness being accounted theirs by their faith in me. Does that make sense? Am I saying that clearly? I'm saying a lot of words fairly quickly, and I want to say him correctly. Because this is 
what our salvation hinges on. It's not by works of righteousness that we have done. That seems to be what we always want to revert to. God, accept me for what I've done. Accept me for where I've been. Accept me from who, whose parents I've come from. I was raised in a Christian family after all. You know, I sang the hymns. I gave money. I've done all of these good things. Accept me. No. No, the Christian says, without lifting our eyes up to heaven, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's your son. It's the lamb who was slain. It's the righteous one that I depend on. It's him that I wanted to be counted in, That's, that I want to be known by, and that I am known by. You put all your hope in Christ, and it will not fail you. He will not fail you. You put all your trust in him, and he will be surety for you, salvation for you, a strong tower, the shield, the surrounding shield, and you will stand before God, and he will pronounce you just as he does currently, but in that day of judgment, righteous in Christ alone. And I believe this is what the prophet is teaching here. That he is teaching us that God will graciously see you, not for the sinner you are, but in his son, his righteous son, and account you in him righteous as well. That's amazing. That's salvation. That is our position in Christ this morning. But I want us to understand this. This has always been the case. This is the way that God saves sinners. And so when we see this doctrine of justification in this prophecy, it shouldn't surprise us. Go back to Romans, if you would. Romans 3. I, I just want us to see this in relationship to this prophecy. I want us to see how profound the words of the apostle and the prophet are in their agreement to each other. In this fourth servant psalm is the doctrine of justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, that Paul clearly teaches in Galatians and here in Romans, but I want to especially see it here in a few verses in Romans chapter 3. And I want you to remember that word then, when, when, that I said about the Advent season, everything is, is dependent upon, we, we look at this and we look back and we say, this is fulfillment. Christ came, the promised one came, the Messiah came, this is this is what we rejoice in in this season. And I want us to see that, those two words of verse 21, but now. And then we'll see another word here. But, but now, there's something that is fulfillment here being spoken of. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest. That's the other word. This is, this is Christmas. This is Advent language. This is a Christmas sermon. You, you should understand that. We're not even going to the, to the scene at Bethlehem, and this is a Christmas sermon. You understand? 
Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Listen, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That's what we're reading in Isaiah. We're reading the prophet bearing witness to this manifestation of God's righteousness. 22. What kind of righteousness? What is this righteousness? The righteousness of God through faith. In what? In who? In Christ Jesus. That's his servant. That's the servant for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that for all have sinned is two groups, essentially. The two groups that make up everybody in the entire world, Jew and Gentile. Where have you come from? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. This salvation, this righteousness is for you if you believe. Listen, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's one unifying factor. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's the second one. All people fall under one of those two categories. All have sinned, all. And all are justified who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, his work of redemption. Verse 25, I want to keep going whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to re be received by faith. Everything that we are seeing in the servant psalm has to do with redemption that is in Christ Jesus through God putting him forward. It was the will of the Father to crush him as a propitiation for our sin to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. This is referring to Old Testament saints. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, now, today, concurrently, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the prophecy coming true in fulfillment because Christ came. He fulfilled this prophecy by becoming sin for you. By becoming a propitiation, literally the mercy seat of God. He became that, the means of mercy for you before God. And how is that yours? How is Christ satisfied in you? When you trust him alone. When you believe on him alone. What a joy to come to the table of the Lord this morning, having been justified by faith in the servant of Yahweh. What a joy to know that you, although a sinner, have been accounted righteous by faith in Christ's finished work. But let us remember that the means of our justification this morning, which is our hope and joy, is also what satisfied Christ when he went to the cross. Do you think of that? Jesus is pleased to save you. It should be obvious, but it should raise our hearts when we really give thought to it. What satisfies him should be the greatest question. It should be the greatest pursuit of our lives. What pleases God? What satisfies the Son? Your salvation. 
your justification, your standing in him, your trusting in him, pleases him. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. We can look upon these elements before us this morning and see what Christ, what satisfied him. Not his suffering alone, but what his suffering accomplished in glorifying the Father and in bringing many sons to glory. Let's pray.